Hey everyone, welcome to Thought Bubble Podcast. I'm Raghu Kasa. I hope you're having a good day. Today I'll be talking with T.R. Reed. T.R. Reed is an American reporter for the Washington Post, a documentary film correspondent, and an author. He's also been a frequent guest on NPR's Morning Edition. At the Washington Post, he covered Congress and four presidential campaigns. He also served as the paper's chief foreign foreign correspondent in London and Tokyo. T.R. Reid has written 10 books. His 2009 book, The Healing of America, became a national bestseller. Reid has also made two PBS frontline documentaries, which are Sick Around the World and India, A Second Opinion. T.R. Reed's newest book, A Fine Mess, A Global Quest for a Fairer, Simpler, and More Efficient Tax Code, gives insight into how Congress can reform our federal tax system. I've read it, and I think it's a really great book that provides concise information on all of the different tax regimes around the world in an unbiased way. You can learn about what other countries have done over the years, what worked, and what didn't. So without further ado, please enjoy Mr. T.R. Reed. So um, welcome to the podcast, Mr. Reed. Um, Thank you. So I, um, I, was, uh, I was interested in your background. You've worked... Um, uh, as a reporter for the Washington Post for uh, like a long time, yeah. um, what was that? What's it like working as a reporter? Um, were you mainly based in Washington DC or DC area, or did you just go around based on whatever you were reporting at the time? You know, for me, it was a wonderful job. I used to kind of wake up in the morning and say, God, they're paying me to write. I just, I like writing. I like telling stories. I think all reporters like telling stories. Um, so it, it was a great job. It was a great place to work. It was a good newspaper. I was proud of it. I loved the editors. The owners were really decent people. Um, it was best for me when I got out of the newsroom. The Washington Post newsroom is this huge room with hundreds of reporters. There's a lot of buzz a lot of camaraderie, you know, some woman comes running in and says, I'm going to blow the roof off the White House in tomorrow's paper. It's pretty exciting. Um, but, you know, I, there was one thing I didn't like, and that is when you're in the newsroom there, everybody, nobody gets an office. It's very democratic. Everybody just sits at long desks. And your editor, the boss, is, is at the end of that long desk, maybe 10 feet away, and she can come down and look over your shoulder, and I didn't like that. I never got along very well with authority. And um, every once in a while, they would send me up to cover Congress, and the Capitol is two miles from the Washington Post office, but that two miles made a huge difference. They just left me alone, you know. Sometimes the phone would ring on the Washington Post de desk up in the Capitol, and I, for some reason, I never heard it. I just never answered. And so I thought, well, gee, getting two miles away really made a difference. Maybe I could do this even better. So then I became a foreign correspondent. I got 10,000 miles away from the boss, and that really worked. They totally left me alone. Um, 
when I was in Tokyo or Beijing, if the editor ever called me, if my boss ever dare called me, it didn't matter what time of day it was, I would say, God, do you know what time it is? What are you trying to wake up your kids? Come on, leave me alone. Yeah. And about a week or two, they stopped calling. They left me alone. And uh, so that was really good. So I, we spent, our family spent 16 years overseas. Mm -hmm. I think being a foreign correspondent was great work. The, the, the bosses never bugged me. I mean, particularly when I was in East Asia, they didn't know what the hell was going on in Japan or China or Malaysia. You know, they mm -hmm. had no idea. So they left it to me. Um, I subsequently then reported out of Europe, and uh, the big editors at the Washington Post, they had all been London bureau chiefs at one point or another, so they thought they knew what was going on. And if they said something to me, I'd say, yeah, that was probably true 15 years ago when you were here, but not anymore. So they pretty much left me alone, and I liked that a lot. So I really liked the work. And the whole time I was... Um, I was reporting for the Washington Post. I was reporting on on NPR. I was making movies for PBS. That was that was rewarding. Um, I used to think, you know, you, maybe you can't trust what's in the newspaper, but if it's in a movie, you know, it must be true. You can see it with your own eyes. And then I started making documentary films, and I realized that's not true. Uh, you you point to something that's happening. And if the producer doesn't like it, well, that never shows up in the film until he sees the scene he does like. I think documentary film is much less reliable than print journalism, uh, mm -hmm. at least if the reporter is trying to get it right. Mm -hmm. So I did all those, and then I started writing books. And writing books has its own form of satisfaction. Uh, if you're writing for a newspaper, you know, you're banging out the story about 8 p.m. or 9 p.m. and it's going to be in print on the street by 1 a.m. You know, pretty quickly. Uh, if you're writing a book, it's three years from the time you write the first word before it appears in a bookstore. So it takes some patience, but it's quite rewarding. You, you can, you know, you if you have to explain something and it takes a while, okay, you can take five pages to explain it and, and give it what it needs. So. Uh, for the last, what, uh, 10, 15 years, I've just been writing books, occasional articles, but mainly books, and I find it quite rewarding. It's good. Mm -hmm. uh, sometimes my books sell. I'd say most of the time my books have flopped in the market, but uh, since 2000, I've had three bestsellers, and that, so you, you make a little money on the side, too, so that's a pretty good deal. Yeah. Um, what kind of stories were you reporting um, when you were in Washington as compared to when you were abroad? Was it political? Was it um, economical? Was it um, was there a difference between the stories in Washington D.C. or did you did they require you to report on one story or did you have the option to pick your topic of choice? Well, for a while, I was what they call a general assignment reporter, which means whatever story comes along that morning um, happens. One day, I, I don't know if, you, if this is a name you know, but Ben Bradley was the famous editor of the Washington Post. He was a famous guy in journalism. and The front page of the Washington Post was the most important piece of real estate in the world for him. What was going to be on his front page tomorrow or the next day really mattered. And one day, I went up to Ben Bradley and said, I'm going to be at the top of your front page tomorrow. And he said, what, what, what do you got? What do you got? Yeah. So what I had was, this was about 1984, 1980, yeah, 84. So 
Uh, I had a friend in the U.S. Treasury Department whose job it was to track the national debt. This is the accumulated debt that the United States has been running up since 1776. And around mm -hmm. about 1984 or so, when Ronald Reagan was president, uh, it was about to top $1 trillion for the first time in history. And uh, so I, every day I kept calling this guy saying, where is it? He said, well, let's see, it's 999940000 today. It's going to go over tomorrow. So I said to Ben Bradley, I'm going to have your lead story, the national debt topped a trillion dollars. And, you know, about 2 or 3 o'clock in the afternoon, my buddy called me and said, yeah, $1,000,000,016. It's over a trillion. And uh, I wrote that story, and sure enough, it did run at the very top of the front page of the Washington Post. And, um, and and then the best thing that happened was a whole bunch of congressmen, particularly Republicans, but Democrats too, started trashing me and the Washington Post for reporting this, mm -hmm. just reporting the fact. And, uh, you know, we had a perfect answer. You're the guys who spent the money. I didn't do that. It's your fault. Don't get mad at the messenger. You're the guys who spent the trillion, ran up the trillion dollar debt. Anyway. I just want to point out something interesting. At the time, everybody thought a trillion dollars of national debt, my God, it's unsustainable. We're all going to go broke. Our kids are going to be paying taxes like mad for the next hundred years. Today, the national debt is $22 trillion, 22 mm -hmm. times as much as it was then, and nobody cares about it. And as a matter of fact, we're borrowing that money from China and Japan and uh, and the Saudis for less than 1%. So it just seems to say to me, for all the bellyaching about the national debt over the years, it's up 22 times what it was when people were complaining about it in 1984. And now it's almost not an issue because we're borrowing the money so cheaply. Yeah, anyway, so I had those stories. Then they sent me to cover Congress. That was a that was a great job. It was really a good job because if you're a reporter, you work pretty hard on each story and you'd like somebody to read it. Well, if you're covering Congress for the Washington Post, everybody reads your story every day. Every senator, every rep, every staffer, everybody reads those stories. That was the good news. Everybody would come up to me and say, hey, I saw your story today. That was the good news. The bad news is half of them would say, I saw your story today, and it's dead wrong. You're an idiot. How could you do that? You know, mm -hmm. um, if you quoted the guy's boss and he looked pretty good, then they would say great story. And if you wrote something and didn't even mention that guy's boss, then they'd say, boy, you're you're a terrible reporter, junk. So that was a good job. I covered the White House for a while, uh, being White House correspondent. You know, that's a very high-flying, high-profile job, but it's actually a terrible job. Basically, you're a stenographer. They stand up there and say, today the President of the United States did these, the following five great things, and you're supposed to write that down and report it. I didn't find that to be serious reporting, even though people elbow and push and spend their lives trying to become White House correspondent. I didn't think that job was very good. And then, as I said, I became a foreign correspondent. Those were the best jobs because the paper totally left me alone. I just I called it. If I thought it was news, I reported it, and they didn't know enough to say you're wrong. So it was fine. Mm -hmm. And um, what were some of the like 
uh, you've been to pretty much all over the world. Do you have any like favorite um, countries or cultures or uh, like places like where you have fond memories? Like where do you, which countries do you like going to? Well, I really love East Asia because um, I put 25 years into learning Chinese and Japanese and uh, uh, got over there and was able to use it. I used my languages every day. That's pretty rewarding, you know, that was so, and I still love going back there. I, I just, you know, East Asia is very exotic. And then, uh, and then I got into India only about, uh, I guess, I made a couple of movies in India for PBS in uh, early in 2006 and 10. Uh, I did a lot of reporting on India and and uh, Nepal for uh, National Geographic. And God, I just I just loved it. It's so rich. It's just teeming with people. And uh, you know, you're riding a rickshaw through downtown Mumbai and. And an elephant goes by. Some guy riding an elephant goes by in the street, and and uh, we always used to say, as you probably know, driving in India feels like you're in a video game. You're all these different things coming at you for different directions, and then there's a guy with a donkey and a guy with an elephant, and uh, so I I really loved uh, South Asia too. I, I really like that. And then for years, my family lived in London, and I covered Europe, and that was quite. Uh, also sophisticated and fun, and uh, I think I learned something quite interesting in Britain. Actually, it was a Brit who told me this. So you go to Britain, and they dress like us. You know, they wear a shirt and tie, and and uh, they look like us, and they have an accent, but they're talking our language. Uh, you know, they have newspapers and TV shows, and I mean, it's, it kind of feels like you're in the United States, but it's not. Britain is not in the United States, it's European, and that's quite a striking look, different look at the world. I mean, for example, I, I knew the leader of the Conservative Party quite well when I was a reporter in Britain. For some reason, he got interested in me, and we were friends. So the leader of the Conservative Party in Britain, uh, he favors free medical care for all. He favors abortion on demand paid for by the government. The leader of the Conservative Party favors a ban on all handguns. He supports free higher education for everybody paid for by the taxpayers. That's the conservative view. So that's a much more, that's a European way of looking at the world. They just like government more than Americans do. And it took me a while, but pretty quickly I caught on to the fact that this European worldview, particularly the European view of the relationship between individuals and government was strikingly different from America, even though they look and talk like us. Mm -hmm. And um, when you compare the different healthcare systems, um, you've traveled to Europe and you've traveled to Japan. And um, I like the one where you say, uh, like in Taiwan, they have a... Um, uh, everyone has like a card and on that card is their entire patient history yeah. and the doctor's visit is uh, 15 or $20 and they pretty much get, uh, they have one of the major things was they had like a fixed cost. So every um, procedure, every um, issue, you can only charge so much. That was one way to keep um, healthcare costs low. 
do you think yeah. that those uh, ideas or systems can be adopted in any way in um, the American system? Yeah, well, here's what happened. You know, I, I'm, I'm American. We lived in America. I had my family of five. We had decent, what we thought was decent health insurance, mostly paid for by the Washington Post company. Um, and we were accustomed to what it was like going to the doctor in the United States. One of my daughters, my daughter Willa Reed, when she was young, constantly had otitis media. That means earaches. It means an ear infection. Uh, pretty regularly, and we would go to the pediatrician, and he would say, yeah, I ear infection, I'll give her a shot of penicillin, and it would go away. It was good care, and that visit, even when Willow was young, this is the 1980s, uh, cost about, about 120 bucks uh, in America to get that treatment, and then we moved to Japan, where everybody gets health care, everybody's covered, and the care is good, and, and uh, Willa, of course, got an earache pretty quickly, and so we went to the doctor's office. It looked like a doctor's office in the United States. There was a waiting room. They were very kind to us. You know, they're very polite to everybody, even my daughter. They called Miss Reed, you know. She was nine years old or something. And um, doctor looked in her ear and said, she's got an ear infection. I'll give her a shot of penicillin, exactly the same treatment in a fine facility, and then we got the bill, and it was 480 yen, $4.60, for a treatment that cost 120 bucks in America. And that's really when I started thinking, boy, there are better ways. There are ways to provide health care that work. I mean, in the United States at that time, we probably had 35 million people with no health insurance at all. Today, it's about 31 million Americans with no health insurance. Um, and I, I started thinking, gee, there, there are better ways to provide this essential service to care for people's health. Um, then we moved to Britain, where everybody is covered by the National Health Service. You never, nobody ever gets a bill, no matter what happens in the doctor's office or the hospital. I mean, you pay. They pay through high taxes. The sales tax on anything you buy today in Britain is 20%. Um, so you pay, but you don't pay at the point of service. You never get a doctor bill. And the care was great. The care was great. And, and uh, we had to take one of my children to an emergency room, once to an emergency room, and uh, they call it the casualty ward. And we went into this hospital, St. Mary's Hospital. I don't know if you've ever seen it. It's right next to Paddington Station, you know, where Paddington Bear lives mm -hmm. uh, on Parade Street. And... Uh, we pulled up in a black cab at this hospital with my sick daughter going to the, you know, going to the casualty ward. And, I mean, it's an old Dickensian pile. It's probably 180 years old. It's this dirty red brick. It was not promising at all. And uh, we walked up to the door of St. Mary's Hospital, and right next to the door there's this gold plaque, and it says, in this hospital in 1913, Sir Alexander Fleming discovered penicillin. <laughs> that made us feel a little better about St. Mary's Hospital. Anyway, we made our way back to the casualty ward, and uh, uh, the, the head nurse was known as Matron in Britain. Matron took control. She took my, figured out which of my kids was sick and took her in to see the doctor. And 15, 20 minutes later, my daughter came back kind of smiling. They had treated her. They had figured out the problem and treated her. 
uh, you know, and as a parent, uh, I just felt great about it. I mean, my daughter got the head of health care she needed and very good care. So I went over to Matron's desk and pulled out my checkbook, and she said to me, no, 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 no. You, you may put away your check. You may put away your check. We do it differently here. Uh, yeah, you don't pay. You pay mm -hmm. through taxes, but you never get a bill. They treat everybody. Everybody gets really good care in Britain, I think, and with, with, with no bills. And the result is this is a system that works pretty well. Uh, the Brits cover everybody. They have somewhat better health statistics than the United States. They have longer life expectancy than we do. They have generally better recovery rates from disease or injury than we do. Uh, and they spend about 44% as much per capita as we do in a system that covers everybody. Uh, and I began to think, gee, yeah, there are other ways to provide health care. And that's why I decided to write this book. I, I, I thought this was a brilliant idea. I went to my editor, Ann Goddard, who's the president of Penguin Publishing, Random House, Penguin Random House. And I said, Ann, I have, you know, she had published several of my books, and some of them sold. Many of them, as I said, didn't sell at all. Uh, I think they were good books, even if they didn't sell. But anyway, some of them had, had been bestsellers. And so I said, Ann, I got a great idea. Here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to go around the world and go to the doctor and see how much it costs and how long I have to wait and who pays and how good the care is and see what we Americans could learn from that. And Ann got off, you know, she's my editor and she's a big supporter of mine. She said, well, yeah, I could do that book. We could do that book. But the problem is it's about health policy and books on health policy, they never sell. They never sell. But, you know, my last book for her had been a bestseller. And so she, and, and you know, she, she's a supportive editor. So she said, yeah, go ahead, do the book. It cost her a lot of money because she had to send me around the world to do all the research. And the book came out, and by good fortune, it came out at a time when we were debating Obamacare, when Americans were really interested in the state of our health care system relative to other countries. And uh, God, Ann Goddard called me one day and said, guess what, the first week, I mean, the book had been out about five days, and she said, you're number six on the New York Times bestseller list already. It was phenomenal. In the first week, we were just amazed. Uh, I felt great about it, and then Ann said, boy, I'm so glad I thought of this. Mm -hmm. well, you know, I thought of it, but uh, she pays the bill, so I said, yeah, Ann, great idea, yeah, great idea. But um, So that book did very well because it turns out around, just in the last 20 years or so, it used to be that Americans always thought, I certainly grew up thinking, America had the best health care system in the world. We all believed that. And I think now in the 21st century, almost all Americans realize that we don't, that we pay more and get less than other rich countries in our healthcare system. We could learn to do it better. And that's the argument of my book. If we wanted to study something from these other advanced democracies, we could provide decent healthcare for everybody at much lower cost. Mm -hmm. And I think that um, all, uh, a lot of the other countries they view healthcare as a human right. So they do everything they can to prioritize the health of their citizens. Yeah. Um, when it comes to, um, for example, recently, the uh, Affordable Care Act that was passed, I mean, 
over a decade ago. Yeah. Um, do, do you think that's a positive um, uh, like step in terms of U.S. healthcare when it when you compare it to other healthcare systems? And um, and yeah, that's that's what I wanted to know. Yeah. Well, I, I'd say Obamacare, the Affordable Care Act. Um, it, it, it improved things. It got health insurance for about 18 to 20 million Americans who didn't have it before. Uh, it provided for a hell of a lot of people who were just sick and couldn't go to the doctor. It gave them a chance to get the care they needed. But no, it's not the answer. Obamacare is not the solution. Um, and it hasn't made our health care system as good as that in France, Germany, Japan, South Korea, Britain, uh, Spain, uh, Sweden. Uh, no, we're still, we still lag behind those other countries. We pay more and get less. Um, as to whether you asked whether healthcare is a human right, I would say, yeah, in the other advanced democracies, East or West, they would say everybody has a right to healthcare. It's a basic human right. It's interesting in America, we have a lot of guaranteed rights. You have a right to vote if you're over 18. They can't take that away from you. Every kid in America has a right to a free public education. No, no city or state can say, go away, you can't come to school. You have a right to that. If you're charged with a crime, you have a right to a fair judge and a lawyer if you need it. We, we, have, we guarantee a lot of rights, but for some reason, Americans have never guaranteed a right to health care, and our country has never provided health care for everybody, um, which is reflected in the statistics. This is one of the reasons during this COVID crisis that the United States, for all its enormous research capacity and our brilliant doctors and great hospitals, we lead the world both in cases and deaths, the world's richest country, and we've had one of the worst uh, experiences of dealing with this disease, and I believe that too is a function of a healthcare system where we've just never committed to cover everybody. So, should we go to Americans and say, "Hey, healthcare is a human right"? Damn it, let's get this done. I think not, and the reason is I have gone around the United States giving lectures and said that healthcare is a human right, and I'll tell you what happens, including in Tennessee where you live, Mr. Casa. Um, People say, oh my God, human rights, we have enough human rights already. The, uh, another, another right, we got to give more rights to people. It's just a way for them to dig into my pocket and take my money. People really, many Americans really resent the idea of, of saying there's a human right to something. And yet, if you turn the idea around, you turn it around and say the same thing backward, they agree. So I don't say everybody has a right to health care when they need it. What I say is, as a society, as a rich, advanced society, we have an obligation to provide health care to anybody who needs it. If somebody in my neighborhood is sick or injured or lame, can't go to work, can't go to school, doggone it, I have an obligation to provide care so that they can have a healthy, happy life opportunity. Um, when you put it that way, we have an obligation to provide care to our neighbors. All Americans agree with that. I mean, when the Pew, when the Pew Foundation polls on this, 97, 98% of Americans say, yeah, we have an obligation to make sure that everyone in our community can see a doctor when she's sick. 
but only somewhere in the 70% say everybody has the right to health care. So I never put it that way. I don't put it there's a right to health care. I just say the same thing backwards. We have an obligation to care mm -hmm. for our neighbors. Um, and I sometimes put it in biblical terms. Uh, you know, in the 25th chapter of Matthew's Gospel, the Jesus' disciples say to Jesus Christ, Gee, how can we get to heaven? What does it take to be a good person and get into heaven? And Christ gives one of his incredibly fascinating answers. Uh, they say, what does it take to be a good person? And Jesus answers this way. He says, when I was hungry, you fed me. When I was naked, you clothed me. When I was out in the street, you took me in and gave me shelter. And when I was sick, you came and treated me. So that suggests to me that, uh, you know, the Christian religion sees health care as a basic right. Um, but as I say, I find it more effective to say it's our obligation to care for others than to say they have a right to demand health care from you. Mm -hmm. Um, the next question I wanted to ask was, um, when you compare, um, for example, universal health care in Canada and European countries, um, for the patient or patients, they find it very, um, it's very helpful for them. But in terms of, in the perspective of the healthcare worker, a lot of people are often, uh, overworked and underpaid and, um, they face issues. And I think, um, recently in the UK, there've been um, strikes by some of the healthcare workers that, that about, about these issues. Um, when it comes to America, you have um, privatization of healthcare, where um, a lot of companies are looking for uh, the, uh, the, um, as much profit, the healthcare is treated as a business, and they're looking as, for how much uh, business they can or make, profit they can make. Is there a middle ground of what the best system is? Yeah, that's, that's a good question. Should medicine be for profit? Uh, and the answer I found in um, several countries, well, for example, in Great Britain, as I said, no, it's a nonprofit. It's a government operation. The doctors, most doctors work for the government. The hospitals are owned by the government. It doesn't make a profit. But um, in many countries, the providers of healthcare, that is the doctors, the dentists, the chiropractors, the therapists, and the hospitals are private businesses. But the payment system is government. The insurance plan is government. Or in, in, uh, in, in the German model, the, there are private insurance companies, but they're charities. They're, they don't make a profit. If they make a profit, they have to give it back to the government at the end of the year. Uh, they act as charities. <clears throat> and I think that's not a bad blend. I think that's a pretty good answer. The providers, as long as there's some competition, uh, the doctors and hospitals and drug companies can operate for profit. Uh, but the payment scheme, the insurers should be non-profit. Uh, the United States is the only country in the world where basic health insurance is a for-profit operation. And the reason I say that is there's a fundamental conflict, there's a basic conflict between 
providing health care for an insurance company is a basic conflict between making a profit and providing care, uh, paying for the care of your uh, customers. The way you make money, uh, make a profit in health insurance is by collecting a lot of premiums but not paying a lot of bills. And that's what health insurance companies do. They find ways not to pay your bill. How do they do that? Well, they have these very high deductibles. I mean, people uh, right here in Denver, I was just trying to help a local couple, uh, just a couple, two people, look for private health insurance. And the cheapest plan they could find cost $650 a month with a $6,200 deductible, which means to say, They'll go all year and never collect a penny from the insurance company, and that's how the insurance company makes a profit. So in other countries, they say, health insurance, we need it. We need somebody to help people pay the bills, but it can't operate for profit because then they don't help. And, of course, you see what happens in America. People get health insurance. There's a $6,000 deductible, which means they pay the first $6,000 of doctor bills, and the result is they don't go to the doctor. Mm -hmm. They get a bad cough. They get a pain in their side. They get they start limping. They they get some ailment that could be treated pretty easily if they could go to the doctor, but they don't go because the the visit is not going to be covered by insurance. And of course, what happens is over time that ailment gets worse and worse, and eventually they end up in the emergency room at some huge cost. So if people felt that they could go to the doctor <clears throat> at the first couple of coughs or the first fever, um, we, we'd have much better health outcomes. People would be healthier in our country, but they don't go because the high deductibles in insurance, and that's a function of insurance companies having to pay uh, profit. I just noticed in yesterday's paper, the, uh, the uh, Chairman of United Healthcare, which is the biggest private health insurer, just retired. And guess what? They gave him uh, a golden parachute when he left, $66 million. That's your insurance premium work. You're paying that guy $60 million. Basically, it's after you. So I think we should. people need health insurance to pay the bill. But it should be nonprofit, and that's the system in all the other countries. It's only the United States that allows um, uh, insurance companies to be for profit. But the doctors, the dentists, the labs, the hospitals—they uh, they can operate for profit as long as there's some competition. Mm -hmm. And uh, the um, even in um, different part, different hospitals, you have certain for-profit hospitals or non-for-profit hospitals, certain clinics, almost every where you go, there's a different price. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, what do you think, in order to increase transparency, do you think there should be a set price for certain procedures or certain um, healthcare services? Or do you think as a, as a patient or a customer, we should know what we're going like uh, going to pay if we have like a certain condition or um, uh, with regards to transparency, how, how do we improve that in the healthcare system? Yes, I, I, uh, I think the answer is yes to both those questions. Um, prices should be transparent. You should be able to say to the doctor or hospital, well, if you replace my hip, what's it going to cost? 
And the mm -hmm. hospital's going to say, well, every patient's different. We don't quite know the complications. We can't read the MRI that clearly. But they should be able to give you a range of what that's going to cost. Um, as I say in my book, interestingly, in France, when you go to a doctor in France, you know what you're going to pay. And the reason is they're required by law to list on the wall the 100 most common procedures in that doctor's office, how much it's going to cost, and how much of it insurance is going to pay for you. So you know before you ever walk in that mm -hmm. this visit is going to cost me 25 euros or something. Um, in America, you can't possibly know that because the docs, the labs, the hospitals don't want you to know. They mm -hmm. want to keep it secret and then gouge you for as much as they can. Uh, I learned healthcare from the great, great healthcare economist, Uwe Reinhardt. Um, and Uwe always said the, uh, the pricing system at American hospitals, maybe we, ought to, maybe we ought to let retail stores have the same system as hospitals. So here's how it would be. You go into the department store to buy a new dress. And uh, you look at the dresses and you see one you like and you say, oh, I like that one. How much does it cost? And they say, oh, uh, uh, well, well you'll, you'll find out later. And then three months later, you get a bill and the, the dress cost you $8,000, which they didn't mention. That's how hospital pricing works in America. So, yes, uh, medical prices should be, um, should be tr transparent. We should require them to tell you at least a range. Mm -hmm. And guess what? We can do that. We can do that in the United States because the biggest insurer in the United States already does that. That's Medicare. Mm -hmm. That's the government program for old elderly people and the disabled. And Medicare sets fees for every procedure. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, the hospital may try to charge more, but they can't get away with it. The, the most they can charge is the Medicare fee. And interestingly, the Medicare fee is that sharply lower Mm -hmm. than the, uh, pri the fee that private insurance companies pay. For example, I mentioned the hip replacement. This is one of the most common uh, acts of pieces of surgery in the United States for people over 50. And it really works. It's highly successful. People have terrible pain. They're limping. They're in a wheelchair. And you get this artificial hip, and they're up running again. It really works. Anyway, for a hip replacement in most of the United States, uh, Medicare pays about uh, nine dollars to $11,000 for that procedure. Private insurers pay $36,000 for the same procedure in the same operating room by the same team uh, because the hospitals can get away with that. So um, we could, in fact, dictate prices. The most, the most popular insurer in America, Medicare, does dictate prices. The hospitals hate it, they fight it, they complain about it, but every hospital in America takes Medicare. They still do the work for the lower fee, and then to, ride, to boost, boost up their profits, they gouge everybody who's not on Medicare for the same procedure. Mm -hmm. uh, interestingly, in one state in the United States, the state of Maryland, they have a board that sets hospital fees uh, for, all, for every payer, for Medicare and for private insurers, and hospitals in Maryland are doing fine. They're, they're not quite as profitable as hospitals in other states. But nobody's closing. In fact, they're opening new hospitals, even though they complain about it. So yes, prices should be and could be transparent. And prices should be dictated. There should be a standard price for medical procedures. That's what happens in, uh, 
in all the other countries. I don't know, as you saw in my movie, when we were in Japan uh, filming, mm -hmm. I was in a doctor's office and I noticed that he had an MRI machine. He had an MRI machine and yeah. I was in his office. And just recently before that, I'm a snowboarder and I had fallen and kind of had an injury mm -hmm. and went in for an MRI on my neck region. Mm -hmm. And the price in Denver, Colorado was 1250 bucks for that MRI. Mm -hmm. uh, and so I said to this doctor in Japan, uh, you see this in my movie, uh, hey, if I had a, a MRI scan of my neck region, what would it cost? And uh, he said, well, it would be Ichimayan, 10,000 yen, and that's, that's $96. So yeah. $96, the same thing in Denver, Colorado, cost 1200 bucks for exactly the same procedure. So I then went to an expert in Japan and said, how can they do this? How can they, how can they uh, you know, sell a $1,200 service for 96 bucks? And uh, the first thing he said was, well, the doctor still makes a little bit of profit on it. He can do it for less than 96 bucks. But the reason it's $96 is because the Japanese government set the price. Mm -hmm. And they said, Doc, if you want to do an MRI, you can charge $96. And guess what? The doctors still do it, and they still make a little money. So here, too, the government could say to the labs, you can charge $96 for Reed's MRI of his neck, not $1,200. And they'd still do it. They would not shut down. But because we don't do that, you know, it's the Wild West. They can charge what they want, and they charge by international standards. They charge outrageous fees to these services. Yeah, and um, not only medical tests, but I I know in the pharmaceutical industry, um, there's certain drugs that in America are far more expensive um, than other drug than the same drug if it's purchased in another yeah. country. Yeah. And it's, um, the drug companies say it's for re uh, research and development. Yeah. But when it comes to certain common drugs, um, I know epinephrine is uh, one of the drugs that falls in this. There's not a lot of research and development you can do on common drugs. And so when the price of drugs is expensive, it automatically drives the cost of other health, like the healthcare Absolutely. in general. Yeah. Uh, no, there's no question that Americans are getting gouged badly by the drug companies. Uh, as I say in my book, the same pill made in the same factory you can buy in Britain for 60 cents a pill, and in America it costs $28 a pill. The same pill in the same factory. And the reason is, all those other countries impose price restrictions on the drug. You want to sell this pill in Britain, here's what you're going to get. And guess what? They still sell them because they can still make a profit at that fee. Uh, the way they raise their profits is by gouging Americans with the highest prices in the world. Um, why do we let them get away with that? Brits are rich. Uh, you know, the Japanese, their, their per capita income is about the same as ours, but they pay one-twelfth as much for the same pill as we do. Um, why don't we say to the Brits and the Japanese, you pay $6 a pill, and then we'll pay $6 a pill. Uh, and the reason is the drug companies can't get away with that in the other countries. The government won't let them charge that much. And so they make it up in the United States because the government doesn't put controls on drug prices. Um, now, the drug companies say, well, gee, if you cut our, our income, 
uh, we'd have to cut this valuable R&D, the R&D that produced a vaccine for COVID in just eight months. You know, how could we pay for R&D? But as a matter of fact, if you look at the spread, at the balance sheet for any drug company, all of them spend two to three times as much on marketing, on TV commercials, et cetera, as they do on R&D. So why don't we have them cut their marketing instead of cutting R&D? They don't have to cut R&D. So there's, there's no question the United States is getting badly gouged by um, the drug companies, and they can get away with it. And Mr. Costa, would you like to know why they can get away with that? The reason I, yeah, they control Congress. They give huh. huge political contributions to Congress and to government officials, and therefore uh, Congress doesn't crack down. The biggest buyer of drugs in the United States the biggest single buyer of drugs is the Medicare program. Mm -hmm. Now, generally, if you're the biggest customer for a product, you should have a lot of power to, to negotiate a good price, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Now, I'm the biggest buyer. Here's what I'm going to pay you. But no, Congress passed the law saying yeah. Medicare cannot negotiate mm -hmm. the lowest prices, even though they're the biggest buyer and want to have a lot of negotiating clubs. Why did they do that? It's because the drug companies you know, they say they invest in R&D. Well, they do, but their biggest investment is political contributions. Mm -hmm. They bought Congress. And uh, I say that in my book, too, and, boy, they are furious about that. What do you mean we bought Congress? They did. They mm -hmm. did political contributions, and the result is they can charge Americans 15, 20 times what a Brit would pay for the same pill. Uh, this, too, ought to be fixed. And I think gradually it's going to start. I live in Colorado, uh, and we did a, something very interesting. Uh, it, it, the, the price of insulin, you know, insulin is a drug that's been around for decades. Mm -hmm. effective drug. I mean, it saves the lives of people with diabetes. Um, and even though it's an old drug and it's not been improved, the price has gone up by a factor of 10 over the last 30 years or so. Um, so that uh, here in Colorado, people were being asked to pay people who actually need this drug. We're paying $300, $400 a month for this drug, just one drug. Um, and so our legislature passed a law saying nobody can be charged more than $100 a month for insulin. Uh, and this is saving people thousands of dollars a year. And guess what? Nobody stopped selling insulin in Colorado. They're still selling insulin at the $100 mm -hmm. price, even though the price they tried to charge before was 400 bucks. So I, I think there's a lot of room for some kind of intervention to get American drug prices down. And if the drug companies then have to raise their prices in Germany, Britain, Switzerland, Japan, South Korea, to make up the difference, that's fine. That's what they ought to be doing. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, shifting, shifting gears a little bit um, uh, to talk about taxes. Um, yeah. Yeah. So you wrote another book recently, which I'm uh, in the process of reading. Good for you. Yeah, fine mess. Thank you. Mm -hmm. um, so uh, you explore um, how taxes are, you took, I'm guessing you took a similar approach comparing um, like, yeah, exactly. uh, yeah taxes to different parts of the world yeah. um uh, one thing that um 
that caught my eye when I was reading the book was um, you say that most countries have like a value added tax, which focuses on spending rather than um, income tax. Yeah, um, do you think, um, in, in my opinion, that's a more, uh, a better tax system um, because you, like from from the chain of command, like let's say you go into Starbucks, you charge at the distribution level, at the production level, at the sale level, um, and you get your money that way instead of just um, uh, charging someone's income or so forth. Do you think that um, the U.S. should adopt that system, or do you do you have any ideas for a better system? Or yeah, I strongly feel, and frankly, every tax expert in the United States feels that the United States should have a value-added tax. A value-added tax is kind of a, a sales tax. Uh, it's when you when you <clears throat> buy a book, the price of the book is twenty-five bucks. But of course, you end up paying twenty-eight fifty with the tax. Um, that we call that a sales tax in the United States. Other countries call it a value-added tax. Um, this is a form of taxation that was invented in France in the nineteen fifties, and it really worked. It brings in a lot of income, um, and it doesn't tax work. It's not an income tax. It doesn't make make you pay a tax for going to work. We want people to go to work. It doesn't tax investment. Um, it doesn't tax your gain in the market. So people will invest. We want people to invest. So it doesn't tax the things we want to encourage. Uh, it just taxes consumption. Um, and as a result, because it's such a successful tax and taxes the right things, 170 of the 200 countries in the world have adopted a value-added tax. The United States is the only big country that hasn't done so. And um, it, it's just a good tax. It works well. It's a good way to raise money for government. And that's why Republicans hate it. They call mm -hmm. the value-added tax a money machine because it just brings in lots of money for government. Um, but if you do it right, if you put on a value-added tax and then use that revenue to cut the income tax, to cut the investment tax, um, then it, it has good policy implications. When I wrote, I wrote that book. It's called A Fine Mess. It's available now. It makes great, uh, you know, Thanksgiving dinner and giving or Christmas giving. Go out and buy it for your mom. She'll love it. Mm -hmm. uh, when I wrote that book, I was invited to give a talk to the uh, House Ways and Means Committee. That's the committee of the House of Representatives that writes our tax laws. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, there's all this gridlock and, and uh, ang anger and political division in our country. But one thing the Ways and Means Committee does, which I was quite impressed with, they have a dinner in a restaurant in Washington every month just for the members, not for staff, not for lobbyists, just the members go to dinner together. And they invited me to come in and speak at this dinner. And I was so impressed. They all know each other. They're all on a first-name basis. They're friends. Hi, Bill. How are Betty and the kids? You know, and, oh, Sally, congrats on that new bill you passed. They know each other, and they really know health policy. I mean, tax policy, both the Republicans and Democrats. I was so impressed with their knowledge of tax policy. Anyway, so I was in there speaking, and I said, you know, what we really need is, is a value-added tax. And 
every member of that committee, Republican, Democrat, young, old, every one of them said, yeah, yeah, of course you're right. We know that. The United States ought to have a value-added tax. And then they said, but it'll never pass. It'll never mm -hmm. pass. Um, uh, and the reason is Republicans think a value-added tax is a money machine. It brings in too much money for government. And Democrats think it's regressive. That is, it hurts poor people more because poor people spend more of their money on consumption, um, and therefore they're going to get hit worse by a value-added tax. Uh, and therefore, neither party likes the idea, so it won't pass, even though it's a good idea. Uh, and my answer to that, as I explained in the book, is there are ways around this. Uh, mm -hmm. You can use it to reduce other taxes so it's not a money machine for government. And you can design a value-added tax so that it doesn't hurt poor people so much. For example, you can design a tax where you only tax fur coats and Cadillacs. You don't have to tax uh, a bottle of milk or a, you know, a, a pill for your sick kid, just don't tax those. So you can design a value-added tax so that it's not regressive and it's not a money machine, but, uh, and it's a very good idea. We ought to have one. I think eventually we will have one in the United States because one of the things we've learned in our country is we will always do the right thing. Eventually it may take us a long time. Mm -hmm. Just like, as I say in my book, eventually we will get to the point where we provide health care for every American at reasonable cost. It's taken way too long, but we're going to do it. And we will eventually put in a value-added tax to make our tax code fairer and simpler. But it's going to mm -hmm. take a while. These things don't mm -hmm. go so smoothly in the United States. Mm -hmm. And as I was reading your book, you had a section on specific products, for example, um, cigarettes or gas, you compared like uh, certain countries' tax on gas to other countries. Yeah. Um, in the same with cigarettes. Yeah. Have you um, seen uh, countries that have taxed cigarettes, for example, heavily? Um, have they had um, decreased uh, smoking rates or uh, countries that have heavily taxed um, gas, for example, have they switched to electric? Um, has that been the case? Yes, that's absolutely the case. If you take the gas tax, for example, um, it, it used to be that every car made in America was a gas guzzler. And then particularly the Japanese cars, Honda, Toyota, Mitsubishi, Nissan, started bringing these high mileage cars to the United States, cars that got 30, 40 miles to the gallon. And guess what? Americans bought them. Americans mm -hmm. bought them. And uh, that was because gas cost so much in those countries, people couldn't drive a gas guzzler. Um, and, and so raising the gas tax promotes the kind of innovation, either high uh, mileage cars or e-vehicles, electric cars, or now the Japanese are working on hydrogen cars. Um, a, a high gas tax, <clears throat> Leads to that, that leads to fewer dangerous emissions. Um, it provides just as much money to build roads. So, so it's a good idea. And as for the tax on cigarettes, uh, there's dramatic, dramatic evidence of how effective that is right here in the United States. In 1966, 42% uh, of American adults smoked at least once a week, and more than 50% of American men 
smoked once a week or every day, and we had high rates of lung cancer. Starting in 1966, the federal government and particularly states started loading very heavy taxes on cigarettes. Today, 16% of Americans smoke one cigarette a week. It's partly because of education, but I think it's mainly because it's become such an expensive habit that people don't do it anymore. So I think, yeah, that kind of tax really works. Interestingly, economists say that taxes should be neutral. That is, the tax should not affect your conduct. You should pay the tax not, you should buy a house not because of a tax rate, but because you and your family need that house and it makes sense for you. Um, but there are some taxes, uh, known gen generically as sin taxes, where they do want the tax to influence behavior, and a tax on cigarettes uh, does that. It, it uh, makes people stop smoking, and it's worked dramatically well in every country, including the United States. Mm -hmm. And another um, uh, area that uh, um, I wanted to talk about, like corporate tax, for example, big yeah. companies um, like Amazon, for example, um, a lot of these companies, um, I think in your book, you'd mentioned that they pay a higher, if, if everything's fair, they pay a, they're supposed to pay a higher um, tax rate if, if the same company was based in another country. Yeah. Um, do you, and there's been um, ways that Amazon or other big companies or Google, they have their bases in other countries to avoid these um, tax laws. Yeah. Um, is there anything that the US government or anyone can do to say you were based, you were founded in America, your whole operation is in America, you have to abide by these rules. Is there any enforcement or anything that's being done? Yeah, this, this was, and still is, but it was previously even worse, a major problem in American taxation. Um, it used to be that the United States had one of the highest rates of corporate income tax, 36, 37%, much higher than in other countries. And so the corporations, not surprisingly, engaged in a practice known as profit shifting. That is, when they made a profit, they found a way on their books to say they earned that profit in Ireland or in Switzerland or in Bermuda, for example. Um, Microsoft, which is a giant American company, it sells around the world, it, it has a small volume of sales, maybe one one hundredth of one percent of its sales are in Bermuda. They found a way to transfer about eighty percent of their profits to Bermuda, where the corporate income tax rate was zero. Uh, this was just done through fiscal manipulation, through maneuvering the books, and many, in fact, most American companies did that. Um, I describe a whole bunch of them in my book. Companies that that took advantage of that. Apple. Google, Caterpillar Tractor, uh, drug companies, and um, restaurant chains somehow managed to shift their profits to Switzerland. And uh, in the 2017 Tax Act, this is the Tax Act that President Trump uh, argued for, or you know, said was the biggest tax cut in American history. Um, they did crack down on that to quite a degree. They made it significantly harder for American corporations to shift 
profits overseas. Uh, another thing they did in that bill was they, they cut the corporate tax rate to um, 21%, which means it's really not that much higher than other countries. So there's less incentive for companies to shift their profits. Companies are still doing this, and they're still caught at it um, every week of the year. But we, we did take a major step, and I noticed that the new Biden administration says they're going to step up those efforts to crack down on profit shifting so that American corporations pay, pay taxes in America where they get the benefits of our military defense, of our trade laws, of our courts, of our patent system. Uh, they get a lot of benefits from living in the United States, so why don't we ask them to pay some taxes to help pay for it? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Okay, so um, those are all the questions that I had. Um, uh, so thank you so much for doing this podcast, Mr. Reed. Um, I really appreciate it. Thanks so much for tuning in to Thought Bubble Podcast. I hope you enjoyed listening to our conversation. Be sure to subscribe and like the podcast. I hope you have a good rest of the day or night. Okay, bye.